So this time away that I had had many different life times in it. I had a time of retreat, about two weeks, and another couple of weeks that were mostly family in its various forms and its various levels of pleasantness and unpleasantness. And um, and then also a week of teaching the couples practice that Russell and I teach together. So it's quite a variety of things, and some of them, some of the threads will weave in tonight. So I wanted to mention that I sat this 10-day retreat with Ajahn Sumedho, who is, um, he's actually a, um, an American who is now the abbot of a Theravadan monastery in England and he's one of the senior disciples of Ajahn Chah who was the great meditation teacher in Thailand who was Jack Kornfield's teacher and the teacher of many of, of our teachers and Ajahn Sumedho is 72 yeah and um, you know he's come to that wonderful place in life I've only got six more years to go, so maybe I'll get there too. Where he just teaches just how he wants to teach. And so at some point in the middle of the retreat, I thought, I'm hearing the same Dharma talk twice a day. Because he would give a talk every morning early, and then he'd give another talk in the evening. And a couple of times I was kind of annoyed. Like, what is this? How come he can't? do like the rest of us do and at least disguise it with a new topic or <laughs> some different stories or something but it you know, kept coming around and coming around and then after I sat the 10 days of retreat I went to up to Abayagiri Monastery which is a monastery in the same lineage up near Ukiah where I spent some more time with them and heard the same Dharma talk again a couple of times and um But you know, after I left him, I realized that I'd really heard it. It was like when you hear the same Dharma talk twice a day for 14 days, you begin to get it after a while. I mean, I'm not too bright sometimes, so it takes that. So I decided that I'm not ever going to apologize again for giving the same Dharma talk a second time. So if some of you, some of you I know who were here on Tuesday are going to now hearing version two of Tuesday's talk, and some of you will recognize some of the bits and pieces, and that's okay because there's that way in which all of the Buddha's teachings are actually quite like that. They're very holographic, and no matter where you come in, you know, call it the Four Noble Truths, call it a teaching on the hindrances, call it a teaching on karma, call it a teaching on this or that or the other thing. And it really boils down to something that Jack Kornfield said in one of his early books, that all of the Buddhist teachings can be summed up in two words, let go. So now you've heard it, you can go home. (laughs) Um, Except I'm going to talk for a little longer, so don't. But it's fun to think about that, and I think it's really helpful when you're thinking, oh, I've heard this talk before, to really, as as I do, I try to ask myself the question about, well, why is it that I need to hear it again tonight? What is it about this particular teaching that would be helpful right now? 
So the other thing I wanted to say is that often, and this happened actually quite recently, people will come and they'll talk to me about this or that in their practice, and sometimes they'll say, it's sort of a throwaway line, I know it's all just a dream. And I always want to say, no, no, no. It's not just a dream, because you know how a dream is. You know, you're having the dream about whatever wonderful thing or difficult thing is happening, the monster or the beautiful woman or the gorgeous man or whatever it is you're dreaming about. And then you wake up, and there you are. You're in your pajamas with your bad breath, and it's kind (laughs) of not the same at all. And that's not really... um, I mean, all of Buddhist, the Buddhist teaching says something's happening. Something's happening. We may not see it clearly, but something's happening. So it's not quite the same thing as a dream. So a couple of weeks ago, I found myself um, on the Big Island, as I often do, and with my grandsons and my husband, and we were in a planetarium. There's a new planetarium in Hilo. And um, that's connected with the astronomical observatories up on Mauna Kea, which are some of the really finest observatories in the world, and with the university. And we were seeing <coughs> their show. So, you know, you sit there, your seat kind of goes back like this, and the sky, the, the screen is all above you. And there we were zooming out into the stars and the galaxies and the nebulae. And I'm sure some of you know those pictures. They are just so incredibly amazing. And it's like I look at them and I go, what? What is going on? What What am I looking at? You know, because it, it's just so huge and so vast and so mysterious and and I actually found myself weeping after a while I was so touched by the incredible beauty and the incredible mystery of whatever it is that's happening in this universe of ours and so it's a question that the Buddha would have liked what's going on here because that's really what the Buddha's question was, was, what's going on, how come there's so much suffering, and how can we come to an end of it? So one of the other things I did while I was away during this time was I've been reading um, Pico Iyer's new book on the Dalai Lama, which is a, a biographical discussion of the Dalai Lama and his work and his life. And one of the things I was quite mm, struck by, something I knew, but you know how that is, it came in again in a slightly different way, was where Ayer talks about the, this relentless training in debate that the monks in the Dalai Lama's lineage get, where they, they spend years challenging each other about what is it that you really know and how do you know it and you've seen the pictures and some of you have probably seen it in action you know where they're facing each other and they look it actually looks like martial arts you know and they clap their hands and they make their points and they go back and forth and they try to go deeper and deeper and deeper really challenging each other 
on what it is that they understand to be true. How do you know that it's true? How do you know, how do you know anything is true? You know, I'd be kind of interested. We could do that in here sometime, maybe sometime. Try it. So, and he, the Dalai Lama is actually quite insistent that it's important to challenge consistently our concepts of what we think is true. And he's been asked, you know, because he's very interested in the interface of science and Buddhism. And people will ask him, well, what if, what if the physicists or the chemists come up with something that proves that one of these Tibetan Buddhist teachings is not true? And he says, well, we'd have to let it go then because that's how you work with those kinds of inquiries. You just keep going deeper, and if something turns out not to be true, you let it go. Well, think about it. You know, Most of us don't do that so easily. We hold on to things that we believe to be true, and we can get a little holding on. So while I was in the monastery, we again chanted one of the chants that always makes me a little grumpy. (laughs) So, it says, the English translation, in brief, the five focuses of the grasping mind are dukkha. These are as follows. Identification with the body, identification with feeling, identification with perception, identification with mental formations, identification with consciousness. For the complete understanding of this, the Blessed One in his lifetime frequently instructed his disciples in just this way. In addition, he further instructed, the body is impermanent, feeling is impermanent, perception is impermanent, mental formations are impermanent, Consciousness is impermanent. The body is not self. Feeling is not self. Perception is not self. Mental formations are not self. Consciousness is not self. And every time I chant that, it's just so relentless. Like, oh my goodness, you know, what's left? What's left? All of this stuff, body. Feeling, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness are impermanent and not self. So this is a teaching about what is known as the five aggregates. It's well known, I know, to some of you. And the aggregates um, come up over and over again in the Buddha's teaching, and he basically says that to define yourself by them, to identify with them, will create suffering. So the, the, the word that translates as aggregates, khandas or skandas, can also be translated as the heaps or the bundles or the baskets. So it's, it's these, these kind of gatherings together of certain kinds of experiences. So there's the experience that is the experience of the body. The felt sense of this physical event that calls itself your body. And then there's the experience 
that what is happening to you is either pleasant or unpleasant or sometimes neutral. That's what feelings mean in this case. That that um, that there's the, always that quality in your experience. There's the experience of perception. That 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 place that perceives oh a sound or oh, an itch whatever. And there's very closely tied in with all of this actually is what are called mental formations. So that's the place where the mind kicks in, gives names, writes um, sentences, short stories, novels, depending on what it is that has just happened to you. But you know that place where the mind very quickly proliferates into an enormous amount and goes on a lot. Probably some of you were experiencing mental formations while we were sitting. I know I was. So, and then, and then sort of, in a way, underlying all of this is the experience of consciousness, the knowing of what's happening, that place that, that knows the body, that knows feeling, that knows um, perceptions and mental formations. And, and so, the, and what the Buddha is saying is no one of these is self. And, you know, you begin to watch and you see how quickly we get identified with one of them. You know, it's very easy to, to feel like this body is me because, you know, if it's mistreated or injured or ill, it sure feels like me. And, and we certainly, you know, those of us who have been around people who are dying or have died know that there's, you know, what is it that happens when that event happens and then the body does disappear but what about, what about me? You know, that's, that's an interesting question and, and it's one that preoccupies us in many, many different ways. Um, and certainly with mental formations we get very, very caught and identified with our stories. I mean, think of how many times in the course of a week or a month you might say, I am a person who? And then you fill in the blank. You know, I exercise regularly, I eat good food, I meditate every day. Whatever it is that you do, that is your description of who you are. And then, of course, there's the much more complicated stories. And, and the story place is certainly one where we see that when we get identified with a particular story, we really do suffer. You know, we get so locked in. I talked some today with someone who was telling me about an early childhood event in which this person, when they were probably somewhere between one and a half and three, maybe, possibly, because there's no clear memory, let a puppy out of wherever it was that it was supposed to be, and the puppy got hit by a car and ultimately died. This person is now well over 50, let's just say. It's not me. And is still weeping because they feel that they are at fault for the death of that puppy. And now this is not an unusual thing to hear. Those of us who are therapists have heard many, many stories like this where something happened 
and someone as a child took on the blame for the divorce, the death, the injury, whatever it was that happened, and carry that story somehow deep inside all of their lives. This person wept when they told me today, still feeling so confused by, was it my fault? Did I do it? You know, what happens? And so we, we do that. We carry stories about somebody being angry or mean to us. You know, something happens in a family interaction and someone gets upset and then you find out, oh, you know, they didn't... It's not even always clear what they liked or didn't like, but they're angry. And then they carry that story around and won't speak to you or won't, you know, interact with you in some way or whatever or, you know... Um, or they hear um, so another experience that happened actually quite recently was someone who heard that a second person didn't know why a meeting was taking place and they understood this to be manipulative and didn't understand it to be just forgetting, you know? And so the story of manipulation led to a lot of angry response, which of course spirals into more suffering, doesn't it? So we see that when we get hooked into these things and identified with them, then we suffer. Now, the Buddha doesn't anywhere say what a person is, actually. It goes to great lengths not to say what, what exactly is happening here. He just says that there's this event that happens. You can identify components, and they come together like the eddy in a stream. So we all have bodies, we all have feelings, we all have perceptions, we have mental formations, we have consciousness. It kind of swirls around, and it calls itself Mary Grace or Heidi or Bruce for a period of time, and then it dissipates. And that's all the Buddha's willing to say. And that if you try to make it solid and concrete, you will suffer. So, one of the things that I thought about as I was pondering all of this, the image that came actually this afternoon as I was thinking about it, is that I've probably seen, as I'm sure many of you have, images that are microcosmic images, images of the cellular structure of the body that look, don't they, remarkably like those images of the nebula. So it brings me back always to this, this place of what would it be, and this is a talk I've given probably any number of times, what would it be not to know, not to be so sure that we know, that we know who we are, that we know we're right, that we know what's happening, that we know what the right philosophy is or the right religion is or even the right political candidate, although I'm pretty sure I do. (laughs) You know, that, that, we, that we, we get locked into these things that then don't allow us to see something that might be bigger or deeper or more 
or that might be flexible or more compassionate or kinder. And sometimes we don't see those things about ourselves and sometimes we don't see them about anyone else. So one last image because I love it so much. There is floating around in various places, I think I first saw it up at the Exploratorium, a wonderful image that's called the MacArthur Map of the World. Any of you know it? Probably some of you do. So the Mac- I, I wanted to, to see if I could find one and bring it tonight, and if I can, I will. I might frame it and hang it up somewhere, actually. Because the MacArthur Map of the World, when you look at it, has the South Pole at the top. So there it is, the South Pole, and there's Australia, and New Zealand, and the tip of South America and Africa, and then way down here, kind of at the bottom of the heap, is the United States and Canada and the North Pole. And you look at it, and you, uh, and the first time I ever saw one, I was like, well, what is this? What is this? We're on top, right? <laughs> but, you know, who's to say? that the North Pole is the top. <laughs> it's just a convention. For all we know, the North Pole is the side. Or it could be the bottom. And think about how that image of how the world is has informed our understanding of ourselves and our culture and many other cultures. You know? And all you, you can just go home and find a map of the world and turn it over and think about it for a while. Because maybe it is. Maybe it is. <clears throat> so I think I'll stop there and see if any of you have questions or comments or um, things, words to further the talk along a little bit. So, please, Sue. Um, it just brings to mind Ajahn Chah's statement, you let go a little, you have a little happiness. Let go a lot, you have a lot of happiness. A lot of happiness. If you let go completely, you have enlightenment. Yes. The catch is, every time I think I'm making progress, I discover I have another big story <laughs> <laughs> that I'm very attached to. But... You know, it helps to even, you know, it so helps to even know that we get attached to stories. I mean, that's one of the things that I really see. That's a very accessible lessening of suffering that is totally available to every person in this room. You can begin to see where you're attached to stories. And if you even begin to suspect it and can even say something like that, oh, maybe I'm a little caught here. Your family and friends will be so happy and your life will be easier. It's really true. Anyone else? Please, John. Um, The only rub I had with all that is that when I start to actually let go of all the stories, I'm not sure how to navigate my life. Ah, good point. Thank you. Thank you. So that leads us to the teaching that's sometimes called the two truths, right? So we have this absolute, what the hell is going on, we don't know, uh, kind of teaching. And over here, you have time, space, John, Mary Grace, Vipassana Santa Cruz. You know where you're going when you leave here tonight, as do I. 
And, and they're both true. And they're actually both deeply true. So it's important. You can't just spin out into the, the mystery of it all because you might turn into some ungrounded bliss bunny kind of being, right? It's not so helpful. Because we do live, for some reason, what the universe has chosen to do is to create time and space and people. And it's real. So that's the place where it's not a dream. Something is happening that calls itself time and space, that calls itself people with personality. And part of the art of practice is learning to navigate that. So both of those things are true. And so if you start finding yourself feeling a little like, oh, what am I supposed to do? Then you come back to, you know, that wonderful teaching also from the Dalai Lama that says, be kind to yourself and to other people. That's a good one to do in time and space. Does that help? Somewhat. Somewhat. Crystal taxes and food and water. Yeah. You know, and maybe there's something that all outside of all the stories we, we still can orient yourself I haven't found that quite yet and that's where I trip up you know, there's got to be some way to decide well am I going to drop out of my business and go you know, get another education am I going to change careers should I cut out and go become a, a llama somewhere right? how do you make this decision you have to base it on something or don't you but I mean, even if you don't have to base it on something okay, but how do you make this how do you operate without stories you do have stories, but you have to know that they're stories. Okay. Yeah? So we can still play with them. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, so please. Still be attached, that's yeah, you can still have stories. You can still be angry at your mother-in-law. And you may even have good reason to be angry at her. But you also can know that that's a story, <laughs> and maybe you don't know everything about the story, even. Right? I don't know about... I mean, one of the places that the Buddha doesn't address is some ultimate way to orient yourself. So he doesn't talk about a creator or a god or some major, you know, direction <coughs> that the universe is going in. So he leaves that kind of mysterious. Maybe he didn't know. I don't know. What he did know was how to end suffering in time and space, actually. Please. Yeah. I come back over and over again throughout my life to the two-word teaching of let go, Uh which I think, you know, no matter what the question is, the answer is always let go. And I think that in part what John is talking about also is to... Do you know your career, your relationships, your take care of your money matters, all that stuff? But with an attitude of letting go and not thinking that mm-hmm. this has any real basic reality, you know, I mean, it does, but it doesn't, and exactly. it's not me. And if you know, like, if my career falls apart, my relationship ends, my you know, my financial situation is in a mess, that still doesn't um, somehow change my inherent being, which is really not a separate thing. And that's that sense of security and safety 
of not being able to be separated from everything that is because I'm not separated mm-hmm. from everything that is. So there's a, a recognition of the inherent unreality, but needing to play this drama and play it well yeah. while we're playing it, but knowing that it's, it's a role I'm playing. Yeah. You are an Eddie. Yeah. <laughs> and very temporary. Yeah. Please, I, I really like um, thinking about this stuff, and even though I'm kind of a technophobe, and this uh, metaphor of uh, windows and DOS, and uh, <laughs> how I, I don't even know if DOS even exists anymore, but uh, <laughs> like DOS kind of being the underlying reality that Windows is built upon. Uh-huh. And I mean, I'm, I, you may I'm, be losing me soon, but keep going. <laughs> <laughs> well, like with Windows, Windows is like the you know it's the interface, right? And it's all built mm-hmm. upon DOS. And I mean, I'm I'm horrible with computers, so you can't function very well. I mean, you can't fix anything in Windows, or you can't. You, you just are, it's very inflexible if you don't have an understanding, or if you don't have a working of of DOS. So like, what? Uh, um, uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is like um, the the world of uh, uh, forms and whatnot. You can navigate it much more effectively. It's not that it's not real, uh-huh. but you 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 just have more of a fluidity if you if you yeah. also have an understanding of uh, yeah. yeah yeah sorry nice great yeah 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 it's your user interface. Please. I feel that I get caught up in um, other people's stories Uh and um, in the practice of kindness, which is very important to me. That's another story. Uh, The making of choices of how to be kind, what way. It's often not clear. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of thought and meditation. Mm-hmm. But also the... I think about the story about the puppy and the story of wanting to rescue and not being able to rescue. Mm-hmm. A quote that I can't get exactly in one of Jack Hunter's books from Mother Teresa. He said, you know, basically, I am not trying to save the world. I am working with one person at a time. Yeah. And that's the that's the problem. Is there are many people in our lives, and many who you would like to mm-hmm. reach out with kindness. And <laughs> yeah, and I think knowing all of that you navigate it differently. You know, you knowing that you're going to do the best you can, knowing that you might not make the right decision because you might get caught by a story, but if you kind of have that understanding, you may catch that sooner, too, and be able to fix your mistake or whatever. And, and then there is that place where we have to, to come back to what Heidi was saying, we have to let go. We cannot do it all. Mm-hmm. We can't. We're one of 600 billion. Do I have that right? 
Six billion. Six billion. <laughs> no, I haven't quite gotten to six hundred yet. <laughs> but you know, and then you see the nebulae pictures, and you know that makes me feel, you know, so infinitesimal, which is true. So you do what you can. Okay, one more, and then we'll stop, please. Well, I was surprised in your um, in the chant that it says that um, consciousness is impermanent. I, I thought. Well, consciousness is interesting. And, at least so far as we know it, comes and goes. But, yes, I think that's, that's, that's the one, that's the place that every now and then people will point to and say, hmm, you know, what is this knowing? What is this consciousness? What is... But in terms of the consciousness that at least is tied up in with Mary Grace, that's impermanent. Please. Um, can I add something? Please. Um, this was from Anton Tomato. The consciousness that comes and goes is sense consciousness. It's what's attached to um, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, thinking. But he also uses consciousness mm. in another way, which is um, this knowingness or um, we would call it mindfulness. He has a lot of words. Awareness. There's a lot of words for it, and that doesn't come and go. So partially, it's yeah. a it's yeah. He's that, he holds yeah. that more as a kind of almost ground. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Are you pleading? Sure. Well, where is where then does the Buddha nature fit? <laughs> well, the word bud, the root of Buddha, means awake, right? So it's actually coming back to pointing towards that place in you that knows, that is awake. That is it yours, is, there's the, as, as Jill just said, there's the, the knowing and consciousness that arises with the senses, but then there's this other place that seems more like it's ground or whatever so I understand but Buddha nature is not a Theravadan concept particularly it goes more with the northern Buddhist traditions and um, my, my own sense of it is it has to do with, with one's own awakeness and other pardon? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other yes. yeah. yeah. but any awakeness I mean you know Sort of like, like go a little, you know, suffer, you know, a little more happiness. If you have a little more um, awake, awakeness, then that's good, and you get a lot of awakeness, and that's much better. And if you're totally awake, you're done. So that's a good place to stop. So maybe we'll stop there. Um, I don't have a lot of announcements. It may be that a couple of you do about events. Let's do events first. There are some things coming up at the end of August. Um, What is coming up a little (laughs) sooner than the end of August are a few things. One is there's a retreat at Vashrapani, which is in Boulder Creek, that is sponsored by Spirit Rock that I teach along with John Travis and Gil Fronstall. Some of you have sat that retreat. And I believe there are still openings, although it usually fills, um, but you would find out by going to the Spirit Rock website. 
It's a 10-day retreat. It's a great retreat. It's a little more rustic than Spirit Rock is. Um, but I would hope that some of you might think about signing up. Often we have a few people from Vipassana Santa Cruz, so it sort of feels like a, a home retreat since we're, we're not very far from Santa Cruz. So there's that. There's also flyers over there for a, a wilderness retreat that Carla Brennan is leading that's not a Vipassana Santa Cruz event, but it is being led by her. And I know Jill was on her recent wilderness trip and Phyllis. So if you have questions about what that might look like, you could talk to, to Jill or Phyllis and they will tell you about it. And um, so that's there. And then um, there are flyers for a day long on Qigong and Vipassana and another one on the 32 parts of the body along with some Qigong that are happening here in late August and early September. So that's what I know about events. Is there any other event announcement that needs to be? John, would you like to announce about your research? You might want to stand up so people can see you. Uh, my name is John. I'm a graduate student at the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology in Palo Alto. Um, and I'm doing a doctoral research study right now on inside meditation practice and its relationship to the personality structure. And so I'm looking for volunteers, uh, people who might be interested uh, to participate in the study. Uh, it's an online study. I have a secure. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.